Ahoy! And welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. On today's show, we're pitting two essential films against each other to see which is essentialier during Civil War. It's the Summer Spielberg Showdown, featuring Jaws versus E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Both movies are masterpieces, but only one can win. So phone home and get a bigger boat, because this Civil War battle is really gonna hurt. And then once the dust settles, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Well, dear Midnight Warriors, in case you were wondering, this Civil War was prompted by Chris and I's mutual, shall we say, lack of enthusiasm for seeing Spielberg's latest, the BFG. I'd say I'm BFG agnostic. Yes, exactly. It might be very good. Apparently, reviews have been uh, quite grand, but just neither one of us could, like I said, work up the prerequisite enthusiasm. So we decided to do this. However, one person who did very much enjoy this film was friend of the show and news editor for Collider.com, Adam Chitwood who wrote a very interesting piece called It's Time to Stop Taking Steven Spielberg for Granted. Now, in summation, this article essentially argues that Steven Spielberg is placed on a higher pedestal, and rightfully so. We halfway expect every single one of his movies to be multi-billion dollar grossing masterpieces. And even when they're quite good, that's just an unfair standard to hold any director. So even though BFG is good, Bridge of Spies is good, Lincoln is good, that since they're not as good as, say, E.T. or Jaws, we think that they're a failure. And Mr. Chitwood is arguing that that is unfair. How do you feel about that argument, Chris? I definitely sympathize with his his voice in this. I, I do agree. Like, I even felt after uh, seeing A Bridge of Spies last year that I had sort of let Spielberg down. I think I've voiced this before, but it was I had, I had sort of given up on him in, like, being able to... Uh, capture my imagination again or or you know just wow me in a in a seat in a theater and with bridge of spies he proved that he's he still can and he probably still has been but you know the the past few things i had seen like uh tintin i didn't really enjoy it felt like a very it felt like a kids movie setting up for a sequel preparing for a sequel more than anything. Uh, Lincoln, I thought was good, but it didn't like, it wasn't transcendently great. Didn't Mm -hmm. blow me away. Um, And so actually I, I sort of was reassessing Spielberg myself, but then the trailer for BFG comes out and I just can't get myself to go and see it. Yeah. If, if even the trailer starts to put you to sleep and and like we said, it's getting, uh, it's getting good reviews. However, Chitwood argues that not only is this unfair to Spielberg, but it's actually unfair to us in the movie going audience because Spielberg's movies are still, if you just look at the ratings and then see the films themselves, they're still better than Mm -hmm. most of what's coming out. They're just not as good as old Spielberg. Right. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a conflict there. It reminds me of Roger Ebert's review of, I believe, Gains of New York, where he said it's a good movie, but it's just, it's disappointing coming from the guy who directed Taxi Driver and Goodfellas. And I feel like Steven Spielberg gives that same situation. I think that's maybe a little more fair towards uh, uh, Gains of New York. Like, I mean, even the Well, worst... bear in mind that BFG was written by Melissa Matheson prior to her passing. So mm-hmm. this was, I'm not going to say it was pitches, hey, it's E.T. again, but there right. was kind of that understanding. And then as good as BFG is, neither one of us have seen it yet, um, as good as BFG probably is, it's not E.T. And it never was going to be. Fair. But it's also more of a, you know, it's based on a Raw Dahl book. You know, it's coming from pre-existing material, which is all the rage right now. Um, it's, you would think there would be some sort of built in audience, but then again, like it's Roald Dahl books aren't exactly, you know, they're, they're kids books, but they're kind of creepy, scary kids books. They're almost more adult 
children oriented. I, I wouldn't say that. I would say that kids, whenever Roald Dahl wrote, were just tougher. So <laughs> I, that, I don't, I don't think it it's that. Yeah. You can have young adult novels and then even adult novels that don't have the same degree of uh, violence yeah. And, yeah, that, that, and, and and scary things essentially yeah. as kids books did back then. Um, but the, the one thing that I kind of, and I, I briefly kind of went back and forth with Adam about this on Twitter, um, that I wasn't really sure about. So he, he compares, you know, he uses Hitchcock and Kubrick as like, if they were still making films today, you would still want to go see every film that they, they have that comes out. And I, I generally agree with that, but I think Kubrick is a bit of a different, um, character in that Spielberg is almost a victim of being too prolific in a way. He's always every couple of years got something coming out. Whereas uh, Kubrick is, you know, was a guy who you may get one to two movies a decade. And so being that you didn't get one of his movies very often, it in and of itself became an event. And and that's part of what, you know, he's saying is like, we don't treat Spielberg movies like events anymore. Um, but when you're getting, you know, one a year or so, or I mean, uh, what was it? 2013 or 2012 when Tintin and Warhorse came out, we, we got two Spielberg movies within like a month or two. Of each well, other. exactly. And I think it was back in 2005 that War of the Worlds and Munich came out. And so mm-hmm. people were saying, oh, it's 1993 again when Jurassic Park and Schindler's List came out. And both the their equivalents, neither War, War of the Worlds nor Munich lived up to their equivalents there. Right. But both were pretty solid. Yeah. I mean, they, they yeah. were... There's some, there's some weird Eric Bana sex memory stuff going on in Munich (laughs) that I I will never be able to scrub from my mind, but uh, no, they're, they're solid movies. Exactly. So given that, even though he has made good films, you really, really liked Catch Me If You Can. I did as well, but I think it's fair to say that in my humble opinion, there hasn't been a touchstone landmark masterpiece Spielberg. I'm not even going to say movie. I mean, just flat out scene since the Normandy invasion and saving private Ryan. Because I would say that that movie isn't as good as that scene. Oh yeah. So let's. So. And, but I, th- I think there's a, there's a few scenes throughout that movie. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, it's it's the structure of the movie that I don't like more than the movie itself. Right. Like they're they're little things that get in the way. But overall, it's been about twenty years since Saving Private Ryan came out. Do you think that there's that there's any chance that there will be another? Yes, you do. Yeah, he's I got mean, another one. Yeah, in Bridge of Spies tells me that, and I'm I'm excited for Ready Player One. So. I mean, who knows, but let's, let's hope that he, you know, I, he, he still has an in him. It doesn't feel like he's totally burned out because like, you know, when the thing, the thing that I love so much about watching Bridger's Spies is I was surprised again and I was excited again and I was amazed at just the craft of, um, his understanding. He, you know, he has always had an amazing, impeccable understanding of where to place the camera, how to move the camera, um, how to move characters around. And, but the thing is, is that, you know, after a career, a 40 plus year career, that can get kind of stale. And I think that movie to me proved that he hasn't gotten stale and he still, he still has it in him. He's not just going through, uh, going through the motion. So I don't know the thing, the thing that I would really love to see, like, I'm, I'm excited to see ready player one. I would love to see a Western from Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, it's actually kind of surprising because whenever Very surprising, you, you say that and I'm halfway thinking, oh, well, he's done a wet wait. No, he hasn't. It's one of those reactions. Mm-hmm. I think he did one whenever he was a kid, which, you know, <laughs> you can see on one of the Steven Spielberg documentaries. But as far as making a feature length, I don't think he ever has. And that would be a perfect crescendo for him, I feel. Oh, I would love I, I or I mean, if he just he becomes maybe here's here's what needs to happen. Gene Hackman writes the stories. He directs them. They just in tandem go right off into the sunset making Westerns. 
you know, um, I think I think Gene Hackman has probably ridden off into the sunset, but I mean, we can we can still try and get him. I'm sure he's listening to this show. I'm sure he wants <laughs> to know that we want him to come back. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, Hackman writing. I mean, he can start it as well. I'm fine with that. Yeah, exactly. The more Hackman, the better. Yeah. So uh, in summation, I, I think it's pretty safe to assume we agree with Adam Chitwood on this. Yeah. However, we we both hope and both feel that there is another Spielberg masterpiece on the level of a Schindler's List or an E.T. on the horizon. Yeah, one, I mean, it's it's Steven Spielberg. He hasn't totally like gone off the deep end, haha. But um, I mean, it's there. It, it does seem. I, I understand. I understand the general consensus of it, just feeling like there's an onslaught of oh, it's another Spielberg movie. But read this article. I'll, I'll post it in the show notes. Uh, it's it's a great argument. It will. Here's the thing that I think it will do, if nothing else. It might not get you out to see the BFG, but it'll probably get you to pop in a Spielberg movie you haven't watched in a while. Or haven't watched it all in the case or, of like War Horse. I still haven't seen War Horse. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, speaking of Adam Chitwood, uh, last time we had Adam Chitwood on the show, which was a few episodes back when we uh, reviewed The Nice Guys, you uh, brought up this uh, little summer bet we we had one last summer over mad Max. it's kind of a thing yes you, you decided that we needed to have one again which i thought was real foolish because i mean i allowed you to lay out the parameters the, well in this one this bet was even more outrageous and more outlandish than the last one this <laughs> you know, this one had almost no basis in reality we, we talked about the hubris of the alien queen on the last episode in uh uh, Independence Day Resurgence. I think you had more hubris than, than right, she did and here. so and so to give you an idea, folks, is Mr. Chitwood works for Collider.com, as we mentioned. In the p- editor of that is Matt Goldberg, managing his, editor, yeah, managing right. editor. His boss is Matt Goldberg, and he mentioned that Matt Goldberg has family here in Tulsa. Well, for those of you in the know, the professional wrestler Bill Goldberg is actually from Tulsa. He went to high school here at Thomas Edison. So I thought, well, you know, maybe Matt Goldberg, if he has family here, maybe he is related to Bill Goldberg I, in some I form believe, or fashion. I believe your exact quote was something to the effect of, I mean, how many Goldbergs could there be in Tulsa? I mean, it, it sounds reasonable to me. However, you have an update on this, do you not? Yeah, so I reached out to uh, both of them on Twitter mm-hmm. and said, basically, uh, Matt Goldberg, Adam Chitwood, uh, Matt Goldberg, colon, related to Bill Goldberg, ellipses, Asking for a friend. And uh, Matt Goldberg the next day replied back and just said, nope, no relation. Okay, let's back the truck up here. This is the only evidence you have. Right. Okay. Well, and I guess we haven't outlined your the, the, the wager here was that if I am correct in saying that there's no way that it's his relative then or that he has that, that, that he's related to Bill Goldberg, then you have to chug a uh, coupe F5 mm-hmm. if if I'm incorrect, you are correct. Then I have to, of course, drink a Lion Google Summer Shandy. And here's the thing, though, is a tweet would not be permissible in a court of law. I'm afraid that's not are you sol- sure that's this? not solid enough evidence, because how do we know that Matt Goldberg's cat or whatever didn't just get you on know, the keyboard and type out, you know, we, we don't know. He, he could have gotten it was, hacked. It was, a full, it was a full sentence. He could have gotten hacked, um, though. You know, I, I see I see tweets used on the news all the time as, as evidence that somebody did a thing. On so, the news, on the news, though, on, on the, the local, news, on the local news. But within the court of, uh, within the military tribunal of War Starts <laughs> at Midnight, I, I don't think that that's permissible. So before I undertake this punishment, uh-huh. I'm going to need a little bit more confirmation. Okay, I'll I'll see what I can do. I you're you're really pushing it. This I, might this I I would hate to see what happens if uh, if you just keep trying to skirt this issue. I, I keep trying to skirt this issue. I, uh-huh. I keep on saying evidence. I mean, I'm a lawyer's child. It's what we do. You you know what you are right now. I feel like you were the mayor in Jaws saying, "Oh no, everything's fine. It's it's uh, not you know you, we we've already said here's here's the shark. 
it is that Here, Matt Goldberg is not related to Bill Goldberg. And you're like, no, 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 no. Not, uh, not enough evidence. Well, Chris, I suppose that's probably as good enough a transition into our <laughs> Civil War review as we're going to get. Uh-huh. So, ladies and gentlemen, stick around because we'll be right back. Correction, we'll be right here. Jaws vs. E.T. is next. You all know me. Know how I earn a living. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't going to be easy. It's bad fish. Not like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cots. This shark, swallow you whole. Shaking, tenderizing, down you go. And we gotta do it quick. I don't bring back the tourists, I'll put all your businesses on a paying basis. But it's not gonna be pleasant. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for 10. You gotta make up your minds. You want to stay alive and ante up? You want to play it cheap? Be on welfare the whole winter. I don't want no volunteers. I don't want no mates. There's too many captains on this island. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. Jaws vs. E.T. is the ultimate Spielberg summer movie showdown because the conflict dives much deeper than either the films or even the filmmaker. Jaws vs. E.T. goes to the very heart of creativity. Is creativity overcoming obstacles to create art, or is it maintaining a personal vision and realizing it to the fullest? Both can make a great movie, but which is ultimately the more impressive personal achievement? Spielberg was only 27 years old when he was sent to Martha's Vineyard to film Peter Benchley's schlock novel about a rampaging shark. The shoot was legendary because nothing went right. Most notably, the mechanical shark, affectionately named Bruce. Bruce rarely worked and looked so phony, Spielberg was forced to shoot and edit around him. While the shoot was chaos, though, the result was a marvel in suspense that still has the power to thrill 40 years later. Jaws was a Herculean achievement. No, make that a Spielbergian achievement, because the prodigious filmmaker overcame disaster to make a masterpiece. E.T. is a very different story. At 36 years old, the wonder kid Spielberg was still early in his reign of king of Hollywood. Except for a few missteps, he maintained the Midas touch, and thus had a power every filmmaker craves, but few have ever commanded. In the early 80s, the sun rose and set on Spielberg's direction. E.T. was the result. Spielberg's most autobiographical film, E.T. is quintessential Spielberg, both epic and intimate, a strange sci-fi family flick that could only have been made because Steven Spielberg wanted to make it. From conception, to script, to shooting, to cutting, to release, Spielberg had the last word on everything. In lesser hands, this would and has led to disaster. In Spielberg's, the result was the film many call his magnum opus. And with credit due to Frank Sinatra, he did it his way. So Chris, how about we start with the fish first? Is Jaws great because of the serial setbacks? If everything worked the way it was supposed to, would Spielberg's career have taken a very different path? Or was he always destined to hit the moon on a bicycle? Uh, I mean, I think it's tough to say. I think the thing that Jaws really shows is that Spielberg is Spielberg is a director who just lives and breathes the language of cinema. And so I think in a lesser director's hands, all of these setbacks would have been a disaster. Um, I, but still, there is something to that suspense that was built in just not being able to show off Bruce as much as 
uh, they really wanted to. Right. That actually was a uh, a small miracle in creating suspense and creating drama and tension um, that clearly no one was thinking about at the time because they had, you know, they had made this big mechanical shark. They wanted to show it off. Right. And well, and yeah, they being, of course, the movie producers, but a part of me thinks that Spielberg, if he, assuming, of course, that he had the pull to do this at this time, but Spielberg would have said, no, let's not do the shark. And in fact, he did, because whenever Zanuck and Brown were hiring Steven Spielberg to do this, he actually said, I will do this, but only if I don't show the shark within the first hour. Oh, really? So that was a prerequisite. Okay. Now, as far as the, the after the post hour, whenever they're hunting the shark, I think that we were supposed to see more of it. Mm-hmm. And then that was a consequence of it not looking right. So I think what might have happened, as we just said, is he didn't really have a whole lot of pull. So I I think maybe what would have happened is they would have insisted, no, we spent a whole lot of money on this shark. We want to see the shark if it were working. I don't think that I think that he always had the wisdom and cinematic knowledge, as you put it, to know better. And so it just wound up working into his advantage that it didn't work right. Yeah, but still, as he talks about it, there was a whole lot of heartache with just trying to get anything out of it, get it to work at all. And um, it it seems like he did like initially was disappointed with just how little they were able to show the shark. I mean, there's and, and it's just the type of thing that it's a brilliance that feels counterintuitive, but when you see it on screen, it, it just works so well because it leaves you wanting more. It's a quality of um, just the ability to hold the imagination of the audience. Exactly. Prior to its reveal, and then even after its reveal, because we don't see it a whole lot, the shark exists purely in the imagination. And a shark, even before Jaws, we kind of think that Jaws was almost like the BC moment. No one really thought about sharks before. No one was scared about sharks before mm-hmm. Jaws. It's not true because people have been terrified of sharks for a long time. You can watch cartoons from the 30s. And the, and the characters are running away from sharks and even but, before that. But I think it's the way that he he does such a great job, particularly in that first hour of contextualizing things in saying, um, you know, like Brody's reading up on stuff. And he says, oh, did you know that shark attacks mostly happen within, you know, 10 yards of the uh, of the beach or something? Three like feet that. of water. Yeah. Three feet of water. Yeah, that that's all of that. Those sorts of things, which are just in the back of your mind as a viewer um, are just really things that that you then will start to think about as far as like, oh, well, that's where I am when I go to the beach. Mm -hmm. You know, he sets up a lot of things that way as well, where it's just building a world. And I think that's what really makes it made it made it so uh, such a sort of mania inducing um, film in in that way. And, you know, I've I know people who actually my wife the other day uh was was talking about maybe when i was watching jaws like when she was a kid she would look for sharks in the pool oh i I, which which is we were actually i was actually almost halfway waiting to get to that conversation later during cultural impact uh because that's something that everybody can relate to i think is the is the jaws effect of you know being afraid of the water Mm -hmm. what i also think is interesting about this movie or great about this movie and it's true about et too is um the basic storyline of killer shark on a rampage, that's essentially 30% of every B movie, right? That storyline right. right there. It, it's very Roger Corman. Right. And, but then on the flip side, um, E.T., a boy and his pet alien, that's like the other 30% of every B movie ever made. Mm-hmm. So it's just astounding to me that, as you said, Roger Corman, this is a very schlocky genre he's operating in. And yet just his skills, he's able to make it not only a, a good mainstream thriller, but also just 
a, as we said earlier, a masterpiece of suspense. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a ridiculous story, a 25-foot shark in three feet of water, but yet you buy into it. Well, that's actually my, probably gets to the biggest takeaway that I had watching this time. And, um, you know, I Jaws is actually a movie that I came to a little late. I didn't see it until like late high school, early college, um, but I've seen it numerous times since then. And, um, the, the thing that I realized watching this time and in preparing for, for this terrible, terrible battle, um, was that Jaws is really, I mean, it is sort of the quintessential, how you quintessential quintessential. <laughs> yes. How you pull off, um, a horror suspense adventure movie. And it's the thing that I find remarkable about it is it's a type of, it's a type of movie that a lot of times, not, you know, not this film, but there are a lot of films like it that are the quintessential whatever that then looking back on it with hindsight and with, um, or not with hindsight, but with, uh, all of the things that have copied it afterwards, like you kind of feel like it's magic is worn off Mm -hmm. a little bit. This doesn't have that to me. Like there, I know of no other movies that tried to pull this off that did, did it as well and as effectively. And that's part of what still really works about it really makes it effective. And I mean, all of that goes to Spielberg's ability to tell the story in the camera and his ability to know where to place actors, where to place the camera, how to, how to do all of that. Um, so, so well, and you see that throughout his, throughout his career. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, Jaws, Jaws is really his first big opportunity to, to express that. And he does it so well. I mean, like you said, he's 27 years old. That's remarkable well, control. And, yeah, well, and it's one of those things we say, oh, well, he was 27 years old. But if you've seen some of the stuff he did whenever he was a kid, he did some war movies. And I said, mentioned earlier Western whenever he was a kid. It's the same thing. I'm just sitting there thinking, because I don't know about you, whenever I started doing movies in high school, just goofing around, I had no idea what to do. I thought you just filmed everything in just a single shot. You know, it just, I just, the grammar, the language just didn't. Mm-hmm. I'd seen plenty of movies, love movies, knew all about that, but just, I, I figured you just filmed it all. Yeah. Or something Gra- like that. Grammar's the perfect way because he he knows he understands cinema from a legitimately like a cinematic lens of understanding what the camera, you know, it seems like the camera always comes first. The viewpoint, the vantage point of the viewer always comes first. And then he figures out how to um, work everything around that work blocking, keep it dynamic. Have you ever t- seen uh, Tony Joe's video yeah. essay on the Spielberg? We'll get waters? all, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, okay. we'll that'll certainly be part of this conversation later, but he is one of those directors who he is not, he doesn't go in at the beginning of the day and say, okay, I want to get this shot, this shot and this shot. It's more just, he already sees the movie, the finished movie in his head. He's reading the script and watching the movie while he does it. Yeah. And at that point they're just filming. Yeah. I, but I mean, I think with this, I, I don't know if you could really chalk that up to this movie overall. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of things that were just, you know, he got, he got the best of what he could and, and, uh, then, you know, made it work in, in the edit, but still that first hour, that first hour of everything is where it's, you know, basically before it becomes this adventure story on the boat, um, everything is really tightly constructed and within his, uh, within his control. And that, that also, I think helps you buy in as an audience member to, um, to the world, to the, you know, there's, there's this hysteria that he builds up with, um, you know, sort of battling with the, the mayor of town and with the, you know, you, you understand in, in another movie, I think in a Corman movie, the mayor is just a bad guy. Mm -hmm. He's just the guy who you're like, 
no, you're, you're, you just don't care about people. And he kind of doesn't, but he, he also isn't painted as just a black. Right. His motivations are a little bit more clear. Yeah. I mean, they, they catch a shark. And so he says, well, you know, that's gotta be the shark. It's what are the, what are the, what are the chances? And we've got July 4th coming up and we've got to get Mm -hmm. people on the beach because otherwise this town legitimately is going to suffer. Right. Yeah. Every single character in these sorts of movies, character oftentimes suffer. They're just a, a fodder for the creature in question. That isn't Mm -hmm. the case in this film. And you touched on this a moment ago is really the first hour is a world-class horror movie. And the second hour is a world-class adventure movie. And they both transition seamlessly. There's no, there's no real transition point where you said, okay, we're in an adventure movie now. Mm -hmm. It just all feels so organic as we go from one to the other. Yeah. And there's definitely a split, but it's just, it is, it's invisible. Um, I think watching it this time, I was amazed though at how much that first half also feels like kind of reminded me of something like uh, Ace in the Hole where you've got this sort of Mm -hmm. this hysteria rising of, uh, you know, you've got the media circus kind of coming in and, and all of that looming in the, and it's, it's in the background. It's not, it's not, you know, first and foremost, what we're, uh, looking at, which I think is good because it then doesn't try to bog down with doing too many things. And that's, that's another thing that Spielberg, you can clearly tell from the start understood is how to be economical in the way that he tells the story, how to build a world, but not get lost in the weeds, focusing on things that are unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, it's it's and this. This may sound like a pejorative, but it's not. But I halfway feel that he just gets bored easily. And so because he gets bored easily, he knows his audience is going to be the same way. He once again, he's watching the movie. And if he gets bored in the movie, he's watching his head then it goes away. One thing that we absolutely definitely need to talk about. I think Spielberg does this better than anybody else is endings, particularly outlandish endings and still managing to make them work because the ending to this flick for those of you who don't know is he he being chief brody shoots the sh- an air tank in the shark's mouth blows its head off kills the shark spoilers yeah exactly spoilers in for the Jaws. in the book the shark is killed if anyone's going to read the book in the book what happens is the shark actually gets tangled up in the wires on the boat and then drowns mm-hmm. which is a much less cinematic ending a much less grand ending and so whenever spielberg mentioned that to peter benchley peter benchley said oh that's that's ridiculous you can't i mean that's that's a silly ending and spielberg said if i've got them up until this point i can do anything yeah and he was absolutely right well and and it's a i i cannot think of another way to end it because it's it's so perfect in the way that you know you can you can attach the barrels to it you can shoot it with a harpoon you can do whatever you want to it those single things alone aren't going it's almost it's almost like a zombie like mm-hmm. chop a limb off it's still going to come back you have to completely obliterate it for it to go away exactly and 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 just kind of doing the moby dick thing of drowning the shark it's I guess there could have been room for a sequel and there in fact was several sequels, but it just, it was, it was anticlimactic and Spielberg understood that he actually had a conversation with Benchley. I don't think they got along very well. I don't know if you've seen any of the documentaries on the making of it. Yeah, I've seen the, the old, old one. Yeah. And, um, so anyway, Peter Benchley, he and, he and Spielberg were uh, knocking along about certain things and Spielberg said that it's a good book, but it's, this book is not a good movie Yeah, is, is how he totally, put it. And so totally he made, fair. yeah. And so he made the book a good movie. Well, and he, he made the, he made the movie something like a different story than the book, you know, taking, taking the same elements and rearranging them so that it is a, a film because there's plenty of elements in, in the book that work for a novel when you're, you know, it's something you pick up and put down and you have, so you have little inner character relations and stuff that just aren't really necessary in a movie that, uh, needs to move briskly at a, at a 
you know, smooth pace and push it forward and, and all that. And he just, he does all that marvelously. Mm-hmm. One thing that I would like to talk about, and maybe we can transition here um, because it, it bridges both of these movies. Uh, the, the John Williams score in this is, um, you know, when, when I think of the score of Jaws, I basically, you know, like everyone that da 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 but um, I was amazed at how much, you know, else there was in watching it uh, again this time. And it, it really does, you know, it, it helps set the stage. And Spielberg is also smart enough to know when to not use it. Mm-hmm. Um, like when Quint dies, spoilers again, when Quint dies, no music at all, just sound and just the visual of, uh, of it, which you would think, you know, another a, a schlockier director would say, oh, well, it's got to be big and huge when this is happening. But he allows it to become an intimate moment in, you know, a pretty ridiculous scene where it's this giant shark has made his way onto the boat, but, uh, he gets the most out of it, ratcheting up the, you know, the emotion of the, the audience member. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't think there was any music during the U S Indianapolis speech. The point, the point being is that if you have Robert Shaw in a movie, you don't put music over Robert Shaw. (laughs) Robert Shaw is your music. (laughs) All right. Um, so let's transition to ET. ET is a very different circumstance. I asked you with, uh, Jaws if Jaws was great because, or despite of the setbacks was ET. ET is astounding to me because as we've, as I talked about in the intro, this was basically Spielberg just saying, this is what I want at every single stage of the game. And he got what he wanted is in your opinion is that a more remarkable achievement which is more remarkable overcoming setback and getting a good movie or being able to maintain a vision and getting a good movie i mean this you know how i like these philosophical I, I questions know, i know how you like philosophical it's my bad questions. hat harry <laughs> i i i don't uh yeah you, you know how i feel about this i i think they both work for the films to their own benefit and i do think there is something to uh, the experience he got from Jaws allowed him to make E.T. in a way. And and even in like, um, I don't remember if it's, it's either behind the scenes stuff or stuff of him talking about E.T., you know, after the fact, um, sort of documentary stuff. But Spielberg basically says, you know, with E.T., I didn't have any problems at all. Like it was the, the uh, alien, the robot, the, the, you know, figure piece worked. Um, all the time, every time. So he legitimately didn't have to cut around it like he did in Jaws. But, you know, it's still, it's a different sort of film. I think Jaws, the cutting around really helps intensify that and the, you know, less is more. Um, so I think, I think it benefits him. I think in, you know, like I said, in the hands of a different director would not have worked as well, but he knew how to take that and use it. With E.T., it's it's the exact opposite, and and it still works so well. It's it's he. I don't think anyone other than Spielberg could have told this story and could have told it as well as he did. Well, yes and no, because if you at, at the start of the film, you don't really see the start of the film. Particularly whenever I was a kid, it's it's borderline horror. It scared the crap out of me when I was a kid, and it's still very effective horror. And I don't know. It's it's hard to say because did he learn from Jaws or was he always going to do this? You don't really see the creature all that much. He's shrouded. Right. In, he's shrouded in darkness. He's kind of a mysterious horror figure. So it makes me wonder if maybe Jaws. We always say that Jaws. It was just Spielberg dealing with the situation. I halfway think Jaws would have been that way one way or the other if he had the pull that he had with E.T. I feel like he just knows what he wants and how to deliver the most effective thrills. I mean, but if he had the pull, it doesn't matter. Like the the shark. Didn't no, but work. I'm saying even if it didn't work and he had the pull, we would have still wound up with the same movie. And E.T. 
the the alien did work as you pointed out andy had the pull and he still knew well enough where to show the alien and where not to right but we're we're talking about two very different things in that in well that no but, but he, well no because in the beginning of the film he he demonstrated that adeptness of knowing when to show and when not to right and that's that's fine but i i think he and, and that's also part of what i'm saying is like he learned he learned things from his experience with jaws that he you know may have not you know he he had to go through that to um, to gather that experience and, and understand just how powerful that is. And there is something to how little is shown, but not just with E.T., with, you know, basically, I don't think you see a face of another adult other than uh, Elliot's mother, who is, you know, sort of a child herself. You know, she's she's, she's very a, vulnerable. Yeah, she's in a very vulnerable. Uh, uh, she lost, you know, the primary male influencer mm-hmm. personhood in her life and then and then peter coyote which isn't until like an hour and a half into the movie yeah, and the then dam. finally and then finally you start to see some mm-hmm. some adults but you know those uh those adults in the in the opening in the first you know hour hour and a half of the movie they're all in shadow they're all behind fog very much and et's sort of in the same you know when you see him running through that field you just see you know sort of the silhouette or when when elliot goes out to the uh, the shed um, and you just see have the baseball come back like that's that's sort of a brilliant piece of, uh, you know, because you don't know you're not exactly sure what this thing is. You know that an alien has been left behind, but you don't know what its intentions are. Um, and then once, you know, Elliot kind of lures him in with the uh, Reese's with the Reese's pieces, pieces yeah. then he becomes a character, a full blown character. And then you see him because um, he's friendly and he's. You know, he's not menacing. Right. And well, and once again, a seamless transition. It goes from a sci-fi horror seem because that movie could have very easily decided to just be no straight up horror and it turns into gore. The alien's an evil mm-hmm. monster, but it seamlessly transitioned, much like Jaws, seamlessly transitions from sci-fi horror into a family drama, mm-hmm. an inspiring family drama. And in, in, much like with Jaws, there's no pivot point it just all happens so organically it's just amazing well and and the crux of that is all on the fact that uh you know elliot has a childlike uh trust and wonder and understanding that you know an adult probably would just attack et and that would be the end of it whereas elliot is curious and that's that's what allows that transition to happen is his his ability to say well maybe this weird creature isn't here to hurt me or harm me or, you know, it's not an otherness. One thing that I really want to talk about here was the way that he melds the sci-fi story and the, the very personal story about dealing with divorce together. Mm -hmm. And I think had he told either of those stories alone, they would have been fine, but together they sort of, they hold each other up. Well, as I, yeah, as I said in the intro, this is his most autobiographical film. This is, essentially the way he tells his childhood story it's mm-hmm. kind of, um, w- without getting into this movie too much but it's kind of like with france Fr- francois Truffaut with 400 blows that's a movie about a kid this is his 400 blows except he has to put an alien in it because of steven spielberg and i love that well but it was actually funny that you mentioned francois Truffaut. spielberg says that he got the idea for this coming off of uh close, close encounters, encounters yeah. which Truffaut was in um you know, thinking, well, what if one of the, what if one of the aliens got left behind? Mm-hmm. And then he also happened to be working on this idea of a divorce film, you know, this sort of drama about a child dealing with divorce. Um, and what I, what I'm saying is those two things together 
like or those two things independently, they would have been fine films. But, Not necessarily by him, though, which is interesting because I don't think he could have made Kramer versus Kramer. Kramer versus Kramer is a great divorce movie, but I don't think he could especially have made that. at that time. Yeah, but he but he could make a movie about divorce if it had an alien in it. But it's it's sort of you know you got you got peanut butter in my jelly, you got jelly in my peanut butter sort of thing mm-hmm. like that. Bringing them together, it's they almost diffuse each other in a way where you don't you don't feel what the other one is doing because like at its when it's uh really getting deep into the uh the divorce things you're you're focused more on the alien when it's in the alien stuff you then are reminded of you know Elliot's and and Gertie and the other kids too their sort of feelings about and even the mother about um, you know, the divorce, how it's affected this entire family. And also let's give uh, some credit where credit was due. Even though this was Spielberg's conception, it was uh, written by Melissa Matheson, Correct. the former Mrs. Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just the uh, the little moments, the little bits of dialogue. There's no, it, and, and there's I, no I except think, for maybe E.T. Phone Home, there's no great dialogue in this per se. And that's more of a iconic line than it is dialogue. But yet it's real people and they introduce what should be exposition, but it never feels expositioning. And I think uh, Spielberg even said that the her first draft of this was the f- best first draft he's ever he's ever read. Like, and there they had changes, but uh, it was just so every he could see where everything was on the page. There. Um, wh- what about? I mean, the other thing that I think is remarkable, and that that is kind of a touchstone of Spielberg that doesn't get talked about quite as much. These kids, the way that he deals with these kids is amazing. And I think you've said before that he's sort of a big child himself. Exactly. That's just what I was getting ready to say is nobody understands kids better. I think because, and this isn't a pejorative, but nobody understands kids better because he is essentially a giant child. Mm -hmm. And so what here's, here's what he realizes that a lot of directors don't is a lot of directors who do kids, they, you know, put the camera at a low level and then, oh, it's a kid's perspective. He realizes that being a kid is scary. And so that is that is what he's always understood is that whenever you're a kid, the entire world's bigger than you. Everything's dark. You don't know what's behind that bookshelf or that closet or whatever. And E.T. has an understanding of that. But once you understand something, once you know it, like Elliot with the, the alien, you love it deeply. Mm-hmm. So he, he knows that being a kid is very, very scary. I, I don't know if it's necessarily scary. It's it's just filled with unknowns. If you saw Jaws, then yes. If you saw Jaws as a kid, <laughs> Jaws, which you didn't, then you would but, know that but, it's very but Jaws, scary. But Jaws is not explicitly a children's movie. I mean, there's boobs in the first five minutes. No, but I, but I mean um, that had you you would have been afraid of everything had you seen Jaws as a child. Right, right, right. But I, I'm saying like in, in E.T., like it's not that everything. It's not that the entire world is scary. I would actually argue that it's contradictory to that in that there's there's so much hope and and so much willingness to accept, you know, everything as it's almost a Terrence Malick worldview in a way of like everything is good. Um, and and that's See, and, I and that, that's explicitly through the child perspective. See, I don't versus, think that it's that it's everything is good. I think it's that the alien's good. I think the world is very scary and it's very confrontational and angry and dark, every, but uh, it's the alien. Every everything hope. on the child's level is good. And like the I mean the the adults, they are very they are very scary. But um that's you know they're they're sort of off in the distance and they're not the main thing that we're dealing with here. See, yeah, I don't feel that way. I feel like the kids, they get along together. They, the, the kids there, the, the, among the kids, it's good. But the, the world on the outside, the adult world, it's crumbling. We mentioned the, the marriage falling See, apart. See, but I don't, th- I don't think it's scary. I think it's just, it, it is impossible to comprehend as a child. 
Which is another way of saying scary, though, right? I mean, you fear what you don't understand. I mean, it depends on how you deal with it. I, I mean, it's I, 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 to to say that just because you don't comprehend it, you're automatically terrified is well, not terrified, not terrified, but just uh, uncertain and afraid, frightened. yeah, whatever, frightened of it. Like, and so that's, I mean, that's how I took away from it. That's how I feel about it. It feels like this is a movie in which the adults, the adult world, the the grown up world, is just unfamiliar, a bit frightening. It's, I mean, it's you, you feel vulnerable in it. You don't trust it. I mean, their dad left him to go go, go bang, to Mexico, go bang some woman in Mexico. So they, there's just they have no real foundation until through this alien. But they're but they're also resilient and they they have a you know, they're not they're not fragile. They're not just going to, you know, when when Elliot gets gets scared, he doesn't just crawl under his bed. Well, I mean, I mean but that's but that's what being resilient is, is you're afraid of something and then you transcend above it. You rise above it. That's my point. But. <laughs> Okay, that's but it, but it's not you know it's not a I, I feel like to say that it's it's all the world is big and scary and terrifying. That's not um, well. Then no, no, that's not what I said. What I'm saying is that being a child is a frightening thing. You are intimidated by things, but these kids through the alien who's almost they're okay. christological figure in some ways because that we need to get into that as well. But their christological figure is he becomes a beacon of hope for them in this in this life that they have, which is very scary. Okay, I. I, I I guess I would put the focus more on the resilience of the children and on um, the relationship that, that flourishes with E.T., that that hope that really comes out of that. Well, and speaking of hope, let's talk about, as I pointed out a second ago, the Christological messianic analogies and metaphors. I'm sure you picked up on that, for instance, the the van opening up and he's got the white robe and mm-hmm. his heart is glowing. Um, Steven Spielberg, being a, a Jewish man, obviously said that, no, that was never the intent. But watching this i mean and that's just not stuff you see in the script that's in camera stuff he filmed i'm not sure how you miss that i mean it's it's a very you know it's iconography it's it's a i i agree but i i also don't think that he's explicit in saying this if it was martin scorsese definitely totally like his intent um spielberg i i don't know it feels more like he knows that that is a that is a strong image regardless of what its source is. Does that make sense? It Well, yeah, it does. It's just, I, I guess it goes back to him being a kid is we, we don't have to get into Martin Scorsese. That's a whole nother thing. But <laughs> Steven Spielberg, it's, he sees it's, it's almost like something, maybe an image he saw as a kid. And so he didn't really have the religious connection to it as a kid, but, but, but he that, thought that, it was a powerful that, that's image. That's sort of what I'm saying is the iconography transcends the direct religious connection for him. Mm-hmm. He knows that, you know, and and it's not just in cinema, but throughout, you know, recent history, that iconography is strong. And so um, it's just a he already has the figure whose heart glows. And and so draping him in a robe and sort of like it's I I agree, like it's an undeniable image. Like you can't say that doesn't look like, you know, a Christ right. figure at all. But I think his purpose is using the familiarity with it. And that's, that's the extent of it. Not, you think it's like a one plus one equals two situation. I mean, it's, I I don't think it's cool hand Luke, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's removed from, it's not trying to say anything about that, you know, about him being a savior or anything. It's just using the, you know, evoking something in the audience because it's a shorthand. Right. And, and yeah. And so in many ways, actually that might be a detriment to it is because it is a superficial reading. 
of of theology it's not you it's not i I don't think it is though because he's not i don't think he's saying anything about theology well i know but if you're just using theological imagery but but, but not actually but he's using cultural iconography that's the thing i know but if you're using it transcends it transcends theology though if you're using but if you're just using cultural iconography for what it looks like and what it means just from a visual standpoint that seems a little superficial now it doesn't bother me i what like it, it but i i, I disagree I, or, I, it, or it, it feels a, manipulative for that matter mm, see i i would say it feels manipulative if it was like a brian de palma sort of thing or like a he like uh, it feels like he's doing it for the pure reason of this is evocative in a visual language and he Spielberg if nothing else is all about visual language and um it's it's something that has existed long enough that it is at least in the western world widely uh identifiable and to to varying degrees i mean and and so uh i think it's you know it's perfectly fine to have that you know coming from a personal perspective seeing that oh well maybe it feels a little um, a little like not sacrilege, but using using this imagery in a way. But I I don't think that's in his intent, and I don't think no. I'm not saying a, it's, I don't. I'm not saying it's, it's his intent. Certainly, I'm just th- saying that maybe if you're using and it doesn't it doesn't even have to be uh, Christ imagery. It can be any religious imagery. Right. But if you're using religious imagery solely for what it looks like and not trying to go to what it means, then that seems potentially super superficial not sacrilegious but superficial i mean i i think it depends on how you where you like are so i don't know are you are you of the mind that he shouldn't have used it because it oh, is no i no, i think it's fine no i think it's fine i'm just saying that if he didn't mean it to be a christological metaphor he was just using it strictly as this is what it looks like then that sounds superficial to me I mean, a superficial reading of very powerful cultural imagery. And once again, it, this doesn't even have anything what, to do with Christianity. But what makes it, what makes it superficial? What's because the, if you're not, if you're not saying, if you're not using this imagery to demonstrate that this is a Christological character, then but you're it, just, but then it, you're just using it for what it, for what it looks like. What, what I'm saying is it stands for so much more to, you know, it's, it's something that has been out there in the world for, uh, you know, hundreds of years at least. Um, and so it's something that, plenty of people i mean think about it from spielberg's perspective he is someone who has no um direct connection with christianity but he still understands identifies sees uh sees that iconography and has some sort of relation to it okay but then Um, but then it's that's just a painting at a at at a museum that means nothing to you is it i mean if if, that's that's but but if you're not trying to invoke what it's meant to be then even even metaphorically speaking, if you're not trying to evoke it, then you're just borrowing imagery, which is I, fine. I think it's great. I think it was a beautiful a beautiful moment. But what, what I'm saying is, it can it can represent more than just what it's meant to be. Like well, then what does it, it represent? Reached, then what does it represent? I mean, it it represents a uh, purity. It represents a uh, you know every everything that we've been talking about here with sort of the the kindness and the nature of the children and of ET. It's it's sort of a, a hopefulness. Oh, okay, so essentially what you're arguing is he used a Christian visual metaphor to demonstrate the ideas of Christianity, if not the exact theology. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair because there's there's no way that he's trying to demonstrate Christian theology. But there are via via an alien. Yeah, yeah. But there are plenty of things to still be mined from that, and, that, and that's what I'm saying is like he even it seems. Um, and you know, and I'm, I'm putting this in, 
I, I don't know. I haven't read anything of, of him speaking about it, seen in interviews, but he seems to be taking the elements that he can understand and using those as a shorthand through the iconography. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, again, I don't want to speak for him. I'm very curious because you don't really see the Christian imagery. It's it's gotten so overwhelming that you even see it in something as abysmal as a man of steel. So it's it's overused. So I would be curious what he was going for, because at this point, we're just, you know, debating what we think he was going a for. A quick evocative shorthand. That's that's what. I well, mean, then, I mean, if it's just a quick evocative shorthand, then again, that just seems a bit, again, surface. As much as much but as I love this movie, as much as I love that I mean, moment. What, what is cinema, if not quick evocative shorthand, the, the quickest, fastest, easiest way to effectively visually uh, express you know, emotions, thoughts, and ideas. Okay. But it's it. Okay. Then the emotions expressing is again, just general hope, general love, general affection, general resurrection, but what that, have you. But that's something that from, you know, from a, his perspective maybe, uh, is, is still what that represents, even if it's not, you know, what he was brought up on. He's still under, because that's what I'm saying is it's transcendently culturally, we need to wrap this up soon. Um, you know, it's, it's broader than just, iconography of the, you know, of, of the Christian world. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so, you know, there, there we have it is maybe that's what, that's what it was stating because it's just so, it's, it's so obvious that that's what's happening there. I'd be curious what the thinking was on his part and the screenwriters. Okay. I think we should, we should. Yeah. Um, okay. A little bit, a, a little, a little bit of trivia since we should not end this without uh, some trivia. Do you know what ET is? I yeah I know what you think he is and I disagree. Like I well no I, it's I it's 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 not what I think he is. It was actually there was a comic book from the early eighties that yeah, confirmed I don't, it. I don't, I don't buy this. I don't, you don't buy this. You don't think this comic no. existed? No, I'm not saying the comic doesn't exist. I'm just saying I don't I don't buy it as a uh, why not? Uh, yeah, because he's a living, breathing, walking thing. He has well, he plant, has plants nostrils. live and breathe though. He has like he he has fingernails he has well so you all so you all know what, what we're referencing uh et at least according to a comic book that came out in the early 80s which was kind of a companion piece to take it or leave it but et is apparently a plant so I'm, for I'm all fine, of you whoever i'm wondering, fine with believing that he's a plant in the comic book i'm not fine with believing he's a plant in the film all right well uh <laughs> well et can be many things he can either be a christian symbol or he can be a planter vegetable or he can potentially even be both so what do you think he is tell us at hello or starts at midnight.com stick around we'll be back after the break with listener feedback and our final decision on this spielberg versus spielberg summer movie showdown On the last episode, we asked you, the Midnight Warriors, to choose Jeff Goldblum's next exciting career move. Steve James left a comment on the War Starts at Midnight website. Steve wrote, which Chris will recite in his best Jeff Goldblum accent. 
taking uh, your suggestion for Jeff Goldblum's uh, next picture to the next level, I'd like to see him do a uh, road trip buddy movie with Neil deGrasse Tyson. That would combine the road trip movie idea with him hosting a science TV show. You know, Chris, I applaud you because for those of you who have never tried it, a Jeff Goldblum impression is much, much harder to pull off than you would think. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't nail it. No, no, you I didn't not, nail not it. close, but um, mine sounded like Christopher Walken, a geeky Christopher Walken. Yours had a little bit of an Ed Sullivan vibe, I okay. feel. Or it, maybe maybe a little Nixon. You know, a, 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 yeah, a marriage between Nixon and Ed Sullivan. It was, Ed, Ed Sullivan marinated in Nixon. It was it, it was a person doing an impression of Nixon. You're doing an impression of an impression. Uh-huh. But in response to your comment, Steve James, I think that sounds like a interesting TV show. Not Neil deGrasse Tyson, though. Michio Kaku. I think I'd rather see Michio Kaku. Mm, and I don't Jeff know. Kaku. No, I, I think I think Tyson. I I, I think uh, I think they would hit it off like gangbusters. It would be like, have you seen the trip? The uh, Steve Coogan and oh no okay no um, I I feel like it would be like that like it wouldn't like it would be a science show but it wouldn't be a science show and it would it'd be just marvelous I think they both they need a straight man though in that situation because they're both they're both the the off guy no in that's, that relationship that, that, that's what I want to see though is two is two yeah. off guys yeah like no one's no one's steering the ship okay so what it is is they're in a car. Neil deGrasse Tyson, Jeff Goldblum. There's a green screen in the back, and the green screen is the the sciency information. So they're uh, no. I think I think it's a legitimate like they travel they travel around to different science things, and and the bulk of the show is them actually traveling, stopping at places, discussing their maybe their uh, food, you know what what they can and can't eat, those little things, and then like the last ten minutes of each episode, they finally get to the place, and Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson is like, oh, here you see, and then Jeff Goldblum. You know, then butts in and says, oh, well, but did you know? And right. brings in his lesser facts. But, you know, they, they kind of play off each other that way. I, I, I would I would. Yeah, I mean, watch yeah, this. it's just got Jeff Goldblum in it. So I'd watch it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. That wonderful suggestion, Steve. If you have any power whatsoever, please make this TV show possible. And, uh, you know, Midnight Warriors, your feedback is always welcome. So give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter at WSAM pod or drop us a line at hello at war starts midnight dot com. Or hit up that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. And even if it's completely unrelated to the topic at hand, give your best Jeff Goldblum impression. We legitimately want to hear these. Hey, Elliot, where's your goblin? Shut up. Did he come back? Well, did he? Yeah, he came back. But he's not a goblin. He's a spaceman. He's an extraterrestrial. Where's he from? Uranus? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the point of Civil War is to pit two essential films against each other to see which is more essentialier. Now, our first round of this between Rocky and Raging Bull didn't turn out quite the way it was intended. However, this one... Because Rocky's kind of an itchy movie. Yeah, and I don't think Chris, Chris felt either one of these pictures were itchy. So we are comparing Jaws and E.T., this is going to hurt, Chris. That's the point of yeah. Civil War is choosing yeah. between these two essential films is not going to be pleasant, but we have to do it. It is our responsibility to the Midnight Warriors. So the battle lines have been drawn. Let's start here. The creature, Jaws versus E.T. Who is the better cinematic creature? It depends on what you There, there are no depend. There are no depends no, it, in it, Civil it War. It does, though. It, depend, it depends on what you decide to go with. Is it? Is it the... Uh, because I think... They both have their strengths. 
um, Jaws is strength in just being terrifying in not being seen. E.T.'s strength is seeming like, I mean, he's an ugly alien. We didn't really get into this, but he's a pretty ugly creature. As my, as my aunt said, whenever she saw it in 1982, he's so ugly, he's cute. Is, he's, yeah. uh, but there is something to like, you know, he has those big eyes. Um, he, he does seem somewhat like weirdly adorable. I mean, I, I have, I have a little figurine of drunk Coors, Coors banquet drinking ET. And I grew up with an, I grew up with an ET that was purchased for me from Universal Studios. The neck was broken. So the only, (laughs) the neck was always dangling. You can't see this Midnight Warriors, but I have it. I have my neck crutched down. So it was supposed to be extended, but it was crutched Uh down. But yeah, you're absolutely right. He is adorable. So I, I, but I'm, I'm going to have to go with ET. I mean, and part of this is maybe just personal in that, you know, I have, I have a long history with ET. He was, uh, one of you know it was one of my favorite films as a child um but also the and i think et is standing on the shoulders of jaws in a lot of ways and on the shoulders for for that matter of star wars and you know what lucasfilm was able to uh, or or and um, industrial light and magic were able to develop over those you know those years in just the ability of et to move you know all of the you know, the facial movements, the neck extending, all of that is really remarkable in making him feel like a real character. I mean, even his his eyes dilate. No, this which is, is amazing. This uh, not just from a technical standpoint, but all of the above. E.T. is the correct answer. I feel here he's he's the better character. Jaws. What makes Jaws impressive is this is essentially just a force of nature. Mm-hmm. It might as well be the tornado and twister. You know well, what I mean? There's the no idea. character. It's yeah. the idea of. And of so course. I would say that Jaws is probably the best one note character in history you know what i mean there's nothing else to him other mm-hmm. than he's just destroys things and so he's the best one note character but et's still better because he's got multiple layers yeah and all of them work so i think the correct answer here and is, some of them are transparent and some of them are transparent so the correct answer here is et so i think we'll move on this okay, is we've, the, we've yeah, reached an not, accord yeah, here reaching accord so the score john williams versus john williams you talked a little bit about the jaws score which is the better score um, I think once again, you could, you could, you could divide it. I'm going to go ET again. Um, I think jaws like the actual jaws da, 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 is probably more iconic, but it's based on something else. It's oh, actually, it really? yeah, I believe, I think in, correct me if I'm wrong, midnight warriors, we'll check this, uh, ASAP, but I think there's a portion of Beethoven's ninth symphony that goes, so you can see the, the interest, not to, not to steal from John Williams. Cause it's. It's kind of like the difference between dun, 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 the Vanilla Ice yeah, song yeah. and uh, the well, Queen song. <laughs> there's, there's a we we add a little hi hat in there, so it's a different song. Um, okay, but the other than that, like it's the score definitely helps in Jaws. You know, it helps heighten heighten the mood where it's needed. It and and in removing it, you know, having it um, not quite wall to wall, but having it strongly there and then removing it, like I, I said before, is very effective. There is a, a moment or two where. Honestly, the score reminded me of the All Things Considered. Uh, the da, 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 whenever, da, yeah, exactly. Da, da, da. I was thinking of that. Whenever the um, whenever the yellow uh, inflatables are going past, there, it's a very adventurous, almost Peter Pan esque so- uh-huh. score, which I thought was interesting. Um, but the the thing about ET that's so, and this actually it works really well with uh, I think Spielberg's direction of children is if you watch behind the scenes of. Um, you know, ET being made, Spielberg's constantly saying, "Okay, now, now look here, now look there, now you know, giving giving the kids direction in how to 
in the moment do things, which I think is what one of the things that allows him to get such a good performance out of them. But um, you're, you're basically having to work without dialogue and in silence and John Williams score comes in and really build in, in addition to, you know, sound design and those sorts of things, but comes in and really builds a world and marries, um, marries the visions to the visuals to um, a really beautiful piece of emotional music or several pieces of emotional right. music. His, uh, his music and this can, this is John Williams in many ways, but this piece, especially ET is goosebump inducing. It truly mm-hmm. is in, in multiple ways. I mean, you've got, you've got the, like the sort of muted horns, the mm-hmm. which, which is when you have like the, I think it's the opening with the adults, or maybe it's each time you, you see, you know, the shadowy adults like coming up to the, the house or, or whatnot. And then you have your more, um, you know, your, your more classic theme of whenever, um, they, they fly they the take bikes off on and, the bikes. And, yeah. those things. and what I thought was funny, I, 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 I completely forget about this every time I see it, but whenever the movie ends cuts to black, they pit, play the ET theme over a piano. So it's almost like the brunch version mm-hmm. of the ET score, but <laughs> that works version. too, but that works too. So I would say that if the Jaws theme were 100% John Williams, I would choose that because the fact that all I have to do is go, duh, duh, and you know exactly mm-hmm. what I'm doing, well, that makes it more iconic. But at the same time, as I pointed out, it's it was it started somewhere else. It wasn't wholly original. Well, and let me put it this way. If if there were, you know, I, I collect records. Um, if I was in a record store, I could only buy one and there was the Jaws soundtrack and the E.T. soundtrack. 100% buying the E.T. soundtrack. The ET, yeah, E.T. is a better piece of work. It's a greater score. The Jaws is a more iconic theme, just that. But at the same time, as we pointed out a second ago, it, it has its its reference point somewhere else. Well, and if this discussion was more in John Williams, I honestly might go with Jaws because I think one of the uh, the big pieces of his career is an ability to automatically set a tone with a theme that, I mean, think of like Harry Potter. That Harry mm-hmm. Potter theme, even though I don't think he did the entire series, he wrote that initial um, that initial little little right. theme, and it carried through, and was you know they were able to uh, kind of adapt it and change it as needed. And, and it's, you hear it and instantly same thing. Exactly. Well, and then, yeah, and same with the Superman theme. So he's yeah. very, very good at just creating iconic themes. But at the same time, we're talking about the entire piece of work. E.T. is stronger. Uh, Asterix, would you say E.T. is his best score? Oh gosh, that's, I don't know. I would have to, I was not prepared for that question. Yeah. Um, neither was I, but it just did pop in my head. <laughs> I would say that I would say, yeah, because it's one of those things that takes you on the game of the motions. It may be it's it's in a, a running with Schindler's List, I would say. Well, Star Wars. Or, are we or, just or, talking? Or, well, OK, you know what? I was thinking strictly Spielberg, but no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah Star Wars. Star, see, Star Wars is the one that I kind of because there's there's just so much. I think maybe Star Wars wins just because of the the depth of all of it. I mean, even like best thing in episode one is Duel of Fate. Like, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Amazing. And well, and just that. Yeah, his his work for Star Wars just completely elevates it. George Lucas during his AFI even said he even credited John Williams for most of his success in John Williams. You could tell he balked at it. Mm-hmm. He was uncomfortable with it, but no, yeah, you're right there. Okay. So that's two for ET. ET is two for two right now. This may change a little bit. The leads chief Brody versus Elliot, the child, who is the better lead? Are we okay? So are we talking character? Are we talking actor? Are we talking whatever, whatever what? you, whatever you want to judge it by. Okay. Then I'm, I, I, I love Elliot. I, I think I forget Henry, uh, can't think of his the kid that plays Elliot. Um, I mean, that's the, good enough. The kid, that that Elliot Elliot. kid. Hey, he's he's popped up recently in things, um, but I I think it's a very good natural feeling performance. But I gotta I gotta hand it to Brody here, and um, just the that character is you know he's existing in this somewhat silly world, and he keeps it very grounded, and it's it's 
just sort of his paranoia, the brilliance of some of, you know, some of the things like when he's on the beach and the girl is screaming and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, there, there's a good balance between that. And then also, you know, his arc, as far as being, he's sort of a fish out of water and, um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't like the water. He doesn't want to go on a boat. He, all these so actually he's not a fish out of water, but a bird in the water. Yes, exactly. And, you know, by the end he, um, you know, he evolves and, He's, he's, he's swimming like a dolphin. Exactly. Um, and to give credit where credit's due, Roy Scheider, I think, was a method actor, but this is the ultimate everyman natural performance. And that's mm-hmm. the, those are my favorite kind of performances is the everyman performance. And he does a marvelous job here. I think you'll be able to relate to this, Chris, um, even though you didn't see Jaws as a kid, but you saw it. I assume you saw it before French Connection. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I had a little bit of trouble with French Connection because here's, here's the funny thing. Steven Spielberg hired... Roy Scheider because he thought of Roy Scheider as the ultimate New York cop. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? The New York uh-huh. cop guy. I had the uh, opposite reaction watching French Connection as I thought, what is this small time cop doing in this <laughs> this urban jungle movie? You uh-huh. know what I mean? Uh-huh. So it's it's funny just the way things work is he, Steven Spielberg, obviously saw French Connection first. Mm-hmm. Me seeing Jaws first, it, it, it just seemed odd seeing Brody being a street tough cop. Did you have that a similar reaction? I mean, I, I have more problems than that with the French connection, but that that's for another time. Yeah. And another thing I had, I don't think I've seen it, but the Bob Fosse movie, what was the, I, all that jazz, all that jazz. I, I haven't seen it, but I I've seen, seen enough either. to know that that's really going to bother me. It's okay. seen Brody being, maybe, maybe that's, Fosse. maybe that's a war crime down the road. Yeah. Well, maybe. Um, but yeah, I agree with you, chief Brody. So one for jaws, two for ET and we're all in agreement on it each which is kind of i'm i'm amazed by this what do you got next okay next is supporting characters okay um i'm gonna go ahead and start on this one because i feel like as much as i love the kids love peter coyote the mom was great in et jaws wins strictly by quint i mean just as far as supporting characters go that's all jaws needs is quint but you've you've got quint you've got lorraine gary you've got hooper you've got the mayor the, I mean, this is some of the best supporting performances in movie history. This this is a tough one for me, Hunter. One one person that you don't have listed on here um, in in supporting that I would like to draw a little bit of attention to is uh, D. Wallace as the mother. You mm-hmm. you did mention her, I guess, in your summation, but I have her. I, I have rendered etc. on the script. Okay, yeah, she's an etc. Um, but I think she's really wonderful here. She's she's very um, she brings something to that character. You know that I had mentioned earlier this childlike sort of innocence or, or even, I mean, she may actually have more fear than the kids do in a lot of ways. And and the, she, she's this adult whose world has been ripped apart and she still hasn't figured out exactly how to cope with it and, and get it back on track. Exactly. Her entire world has been taken away from her. Mm-hmm. Everything she ever trusts has been taken away from her, but she still has to keep it together for her kids. And I, that's yeah. very admirable. And, well, and, and that's the type of thing that I had never noticed until this viewing because I yeah, same here. viewed it as a child. So I identified more with the kids. But And she is – the the ir- irony there being is that she's a big child herself in a lot of ways. Um, but that, that really – that was probably the strongest thing in – both of these rewatches for me, but I got to hand it to, I got to hand it to Jaws. You're right. Uh, across the board. I mean, Robert Shaw just kills it. Apparently him and Dreyfus hated each other. Um, Doesn't surprise me a bit. Doesn't surprise me a bit. And that comes out so well, you know, that, that dynamic in the, in the, the back, back half, the last hour of this movie between the three of them is such a perfect sort of each of them, has their own little characteristic that plays off the other guys. And, you know, that, that famous cabin scene, which is one of my favorite moments in cinematic history, you know, them 
sharing war stories in the is it USS Indianapolis? Yes, um, which that, is a true story. Yeah, that uh, that speech, all that's great. Um, it's there's, I I think maybe if if it was just across the board, the all of the cast. Maybe I would maybe consider giving it to E.T., but the main ensemble, the main uh, supporting cast in Jaws is just so strong. Well, but again, all you need is Quint. Quint is all you need to win every argument on this. And I think D. Wallace did a wonderful job. She did a little bit better, but I think you get a lot from D. Wallace, which you got from Lorraine Gary, is – is the mother trying to keep things together as the entire world's falling apart? Now, D. Wallace D, did, did D. a better job, and she, and she had, yeah, she was stronger. She had more to do, and her and that's yeah, her character is stronger. But um, so let's just talk about how awesome Quint is. Um, here's the thing about this performance, and this is Robert Shaw in general, but particularly this. He did not play Quint; he was Quint, and I love that. He has there ever been a saltier guy on screen? <laughs> well, apparently, he was drunk for you know half half the time like the uh i read a little bit and i don't know if this is true or not but i read a little bit of of trivia that the uss indianapolis scene he was drunk for that because he figured you know i'm going to be a little method and get drunk and and just really was quite sloppy with it and then the next morning went to spielberg and apologized and was like oh i can't believe i acted like an idiot um and then apparently the the take you see in the film is the he begged for a reshoot and that's the first take interesting because nailed it because I halfway think that him saying it was just a method decision was because he wanted to get drunk No, or he already was drunk. I mean, I, I read a little more about that and, and it was basically like he was drinking all the time because he was, you know, he, he had a problem. Yeah. He had an alcohol problem. So yeah, I mean, Quinn is just a transcendently cool character. Interesting bit of trivia here, Chris. Apparently the role was originally going to go to Lee Marvin. How do you feel about that? Mm, well, I mean, at Obvi- this, obviously, at this point, obviously, yeah. But. At this point, I mean, you can't really. Lee Marvin would have been interesting had you know, with not not knowing, uh, not knowing what we know now, not knowing what we would have missed out on. Also, um, I feel like Lee Marvin probably could have killed the shark. Like this, <laughs> with his bare hands, he would have choked it. <laughs> Lee Marvin. He, would have, he would have pulled its like pulled its gills out. The, the shark would have broken its jaw trying to eat Lee Marvin. Is what would have happened. Um, Lee Marvin was a great movie star, but he played Lee Marvin. You know yeah, what I mean? Whereas yeah. Robert Shaw, like I said, he was Quint. Mm-hmm. Abs- just absolutely incredible. We could do an entire episode on Quint. Okay, what do you got next? Okay, Chris, you and I are pretty much in agreement on this entire front. Shocking. Really shocking. 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 Especially after that E.T. E. argument. E.T. for two, Jaws for two. Next question is, let's talk about the man himself. This is the Summer Spielberg Showdown. Who did a better directing job? Who is the better director, the director of Jaws or the director of E.T.? Okay, I'm going to come at this from kind of where I landed with Jaws. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about it after, and I actually, I watched E.T. before I watched Jaws because yeah, I, here. I felt in my heart, like if I watched E.T. last, there was no way Jaws was going to win because I love both, but E.T. has a stronger resonance mm-hmm. in my soul. Um, and I think will forever. It's, you know, it's, it, that's another thing about watching it this time. It's evolving as I'm not a child now, but it's still, it, you know, it makes you weepy. Um, Jaws, on the other hand, is an exciting, amazing, you know, little action. It's, it is the best possible film of, you know, this genre adventure horror thing. E.T. makes you, E.T. reminds you of being a kid. Jaws makes you want to be a man. (laughs) Is this the big distinction between the two? Uh, and, And so I, but my coming out of, coming out of Jaws, um, I feel like what Jaws is, is Jaws is a remarkable, like, touchstone starting point for 
the amazing career that Spielberg has had since. It is it is a thing that I mean because I I like Duel. I haven't seen Sugarland Express, um, but uh, I I feel like this is really this shows you everything. Much like you know I went with on our last war, I went with raging bull because I feel like raging bull shows where Scorsese went, um, from a directing standpoint, I think, uh, jaws is almost a more remarkable piece of directing because it, uh, is it's showing exactly what we're to expect of him later. You see Steven Spielberg touches throughout this entire. Okay. Film. So, so jaws is your, you I'm, I'm, I'm going with, I'm going with Spielberg directing jaws. See, I, 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 uh, I wasn't expecting that cause this is our first disagreement on civil war. I would say E.T. Jaws. Here's the thing about Jaws. As you pointed out, as we both pointed out, is that Spielberg just has a, a facility with the cinematic grammar. However, in Jaws, there were a few times where he was getting coverage. And I cannot recall any situation like that in E.T. Is there anything in particular that you... It wasn't bad, but there's okay. one moment. It's it's one of those things you only notice it whenever none of the movie's doing it, and then mm-hmm. you suddenly notice it. Mm-hmm. But whenever Hooper and Quint are talking on the dock, there's over-the-shoulder the, coverage. Okay, okay. I thought there's, there's one moment. I think it's actually leading into like the cabin, uh, the, the little cabin scene, my, my favorite scene in, in, in the film. There's a weird dissolve there where it feels like they just didn't know how to get out of a mm-hmm. scene. Um, that's honestly the only thing that um, I felt was like, oh, this, this feels a little off, but it's, you know, it's four seconds and it's padded by brilliance. And it's well, exactly. And it's only off because everything else is brilliant. Mm-hmm. However, E.T. just from start to finish feels like a master at work. It was said whenever Spielberg was directing Schindler's list, there was just no shot list. Really. There was no storyboard. It was just him showing up at work today and saying, okay, hand me the script. Okay. Put the camera there. Mm-hmm. E.T. felt like that too. It just yeah. absolutely just a maestro at the piano. So no, I would it, say, and, and I, I totally hundred percent agree. Like I, you can't without Jaws, you can't have E.T. Um, and that's, that's sort of, yeah, that, I'm, okay. I'm and yeah, on. that's fair. Um, so our first disagreement we've got, so two for Jaws, two for E.T. You, you're on Jaws on this one. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Then I'm on E.T. on this one. Um, okay, so the final, the final battle, cultural legacy. Jaws created not only the career of Steven Spielberg, but also created summer movie season mm-hmm. for good or better. Mm-hmm. It created the blockbuster culture, whereas E.T. didn't create blockbuster culture so much, but it is far and away one of the most inspiring movies ever. I believe AFI had it at number five. It 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 may actually sort of take blockbuster culture to a next level that's difficult to attain. Exactly. It's not just action as, yeah, as yeah. a result of E.T. It's I believe it's still his biggest hit ever E.T. was. And whenever he was asked, Steven Spielberg, what two movies do you want to be remembered for? He said Schindler's List and E.T. <laughs> so it's clearly one of his favorites. Well, and it's a personal film, yeah, so it's that makes sense. Quintessential Spielberg, his most autobiographical film. So where do you go on this as far as legacy is concerned? I think I'm going to have to go with Spielberg on this and choose E.T., um, from, you know, a variety for a variety of reasons, but really I think, uh, ET has, while, while Jaws is very good. Um, I think when we're talking legacy, ET has so many kind of avenues to explore and, and I think, and, and I'm learning as, you know, like I said, seeing this as an adult, um, that it, it actually sort of evolves and has, uh, has an emotional resonance to it. And, you know, it's Pixar level pathos that is really remarkable. I would actually say it's better than Pixar because Pixar, love Pixar, don't get me wrong, but Pixar, it I'm, almost I'm seems like Pixar. Standard, yeah, yeah, I understand, but Pixar is almost more deliberative, whereas this is just happening naturally. He's, it's absolutely, it, yeah. yeah. It doesn't feel like, 
okay, here's the part wherever you're supposed to cry. It just, it happens organically right. there. That's so, the word of the day with me today, organically, because organically, mm-hmm. um, uh, E.T. is a, a vegetable, so organically, <laughs> E.T. is organic. Uh-huh. Um, Strictly Legacy, we're not talking about movies, we're not talking about which one I'm going to pick. Strictly mm-hmm. Legacy, there is only one movie, not just in this, what we're talking about now, only one movie in history that has made, has traumatized so many people that they are afraid to even swim in a pool myself among them uh-huh. I, I i was watching this last night i couldn't eat my soup i but was afraid many, to eat a bowl on, of soup because of jaws on, on the counter how many how many people young and old have cried as a result of just, i know but that but that can be said of, you know, that can be said of you know uh that elizabeth taylor horse movie you know what i mean it's <laughs> It's one of those things. E.T. is good tears. Whenever you cry Uh for E.T., you you know, you've earned it. Mm -hmm. E.T.'s earned Mm -hmm. it. But again, once again, Jaws, we mentioned summer movie season, but that's just like a small sliver of it. Jaws legitimately, personally, and I'm not the only one, it just changed the way I relate and 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 react with my environment. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Watching as a kid, I was afraid to swim in a pool. You mentioned your wife doing the same thing. Yeah, that is a high compliment. Exactly. So, um, so once again, we're not just talking about um, the movies themselves. We're not talking about our favorites. I think as far as legacy, I'm going to go with Jaws. Interesting story is Peter Benchley actually dedicated the latter part of his life to shark conservation because he felt so guilty that people were so terrified of sharks now and were just wantonly killing them mm-hmm. that he wanted to make amends for that. But at the same time, Jaws has been a big contributor to people being afraid of the water. Yeah. Funny story. Okay. Funny story because th- this is kind of good. As my mother took my uh, a cousin of mine who is like maybe ten or something to go see this, she was afraid to take a shower or take a bath the day of seeing this. Really? And so, and at, at what age? She, I think she was ten. Not okay. my mom. The uh, the the person she took it to. She even was. She didn't want to go to sleep that night because she was afraid the water the room was going to fill with water and oh, there would man. be a shark in there. That's nuts. There's yeah, exactly. That's nuts. But. I can relate to that, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of people who saw it as kids can relate to that, and there's no other movie I can think of that has left that scar mm-hmm, mm-hmm. quite like Jaws. So as far as legacy, I'm going to go with Jaws. Okay. Okay, Chris, I'm going to review the board real quickly before you and I pick which film we feel is essentially here. On The Creature, both you and I went with E.T., so that's one for E.T., or two for E.T., rather. On Score, both you and I also went for E.T., so that's four total. On The Leads, we both went for Brody, so we're mm-hmm. now four to two. On support, we both went for Jaws, so four to four. We're tied now. Spielberg versus Spielberg. You said Jaws, surprisingly. I said E.T. So now we are five to five. We are, mm-hmm. we are tied all the way through. And now with Legacy, you said Legacy E.T. I said Legacy Jaws. So, ladies and gentlemen, this was completely unintended, but just the stuff we agree on, the stuff we disagree on, we are now tied mm-hmm. on both E.T. and Jaws. But this isn't a point system. This is, this is more just which film we have to say is the most essential. We can only pick one. So Chris Gallagher, E.T. versus Jaws. I, I gotta go E.T. I have to. And I mean, part of that is definitely, like I've said, my, my personal relationship to it, but um, it's just, it's, it's functioning on so many levels. It, it transcends, you know, a childhood family movie and, and really is, it's dealing with so much weighty content and such a, uh, such a, beautiful, delicate way. Um, I mean, in everything from that we've talked about from the score to the creature to, um, all of that, it's, it's wonderful filmmaking. I mean, it's as, as a film itself, um, it is a, I think a better piece of cinema in total than a, a more masterful piece of cinema in total. Even if I went with Spielberg directing jaws, um, and to go back to, you know, the, if, if there were only two records, 
Um, and I could only, only choose one of the soundtracks to own. If, if there's only two movies, you know, either in the movie store or, or I have to pick, I can only see one. Um, I'm going to go with E.T. Um, here's, I, I've got an interesting conflict here is this is a very much a head versus heart thing for me because E.T. is objectively the better movie. It's just, it's more well-crafted for all the reasons that you stated. It's, it's one of Spielberg's two favorites. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitively, definitely his magnum opus, or at least one of the few. Jaws, of course, magnificent. And the thing about it is if you were to ask me, hey, Hunter, if you could watch E.T. or Jaws right now, which would you pick? I would actually choose Jaws. Really? I would rather watch Jaws right now. And I saw it, I watched it, you know, last night, whereas mm-hmm. E.T. was a week ago. So I would rather watch Jaws right now. But this isn't, this isn't about me. This is about which is essentially, mm-hmm. if I had to pick just the, the one that, that belongs in a, a time capsule to save for all time, it would be E.T. Yeah. So it's one of those things, I, I they're both great. I'm not even sure I can say I, want, I like Jaws more. I would just rather watch it right now. I, I can understand if that, that. If that yeah, makes yeah. sense. But E.T., it's you just you just have to look at it as far as all the above. Um, it is the essentially of the two. And I mean, from a because we're pitting Spielberg against Spielberg, this discussion is also in a way, you know, what represents Spielberg uh, the most as a quintessential Spielberg film, not just a quintessential summer film. And so I, I think E.T. also falls squarely in line with that, with it being so personal, with it being um, and also having a lot of the uh, tropes and visual flourishes that you see in the rest of his career. It's a good like if, if there was only one. Uh, you know, it's a good film to hold up and say, this is what Steven Spielberg represented in a career. Exactly. That spanned, you know, 40 years. Exactly. In some ways, I think you could say that Schindler's List is his contribution to the world at large. Where at him taking his talent and saying, I'm going to use my talent for this public service. E.T. is more, this is what I want to make. This is who I am. This mm-hmm. is this is my uh, marker that I was here. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he said it was one of his two favorites. Well, and they're, they're sort of two sides of the same coin, but, but Schindler's List also functions in a way where Spielberg is, you know, mostly considered as sort of a blockbuster director, but it proves that he can do that, you know, more, um, quiet sort of introspective film as uh, well. Exactly. So people might say that, uh, Jaws never had a chance in this debate, but I don't think that's true because it was tied. I Jaws mean, Jaws put up a real good fight. It put up but, a hell of a fight. Et yeah. really, uh, you know, threw that that oxygen tank in its mouth in the end. Exactly. Et that's a hell of a visual. Is Et sitting on the side of a boat and holding a sh- a rifle and shooting the shark's head off? That's that's the visual I think we I want us to go out on is that picture. Um, well, Chris, uh, so it is the summer of IPA. I'm curious what we're going to go for here. Is it something that is going to make you feel adrift at sea or is one bottle of it going to make you have to phone home? Um, it's, it is, uh, I don't, I don't even know what the difference is between those two. Those both sound like they're about the same say, situation. Exactly. <laughs> adrift at sea, I'd say is a little drunker. I'd okay. say that's probably a little drunker. Okay. Um, well, here's, here's another, another way you could have taken it. Is it going to make you feel like Elliot dissecting frogs? Yeah, um, a fr- yeah, exactly. A frog passing out. And I, you know, I thought about, uh, for special circumstances, I thought about breaking from my, uh, summer of IPAs and going with the Coors banquet beer because it is in fact what, uh, ET gets drunk on. And I like, I, I've loved that scene since I, before I knew what beer was or how it affected well, people were, or what, you know, what Elliot was really doing there. Well, and they were drinking whiskey, I think in Jaws, correct? They, they were. And so actually, actually my, my pick is based on, um, uh, a line from Jaws. So when they're, uh, basically Quint has agreed to, 
take on the shark, he has a list of provisions. One of his lists of provisions is a case of apricot brandy. And so my pick is a Aperhop IPA from Dogfish Head Brewing in Milton, Delaware. And Dogfish Head is known for, they have, they have a few really uh, great, robust sort of, uh, sort of IPAs. And Aperhops, you know, falls right in line, line with that. It is a very hop forward um, IPA. It has uh, a citrus and apricot aroma. Um, maybe I, I could maybe say orange peel if you want me to, uh, to, uh, you know, be that much more descriptive, be well to, you know, you, you seem to like it whenever I come up with new aromas for yes. it. Um, but it has, you know, it has that apricot, uh, aroma to it, but here's the thing is a lot of, and this is a seasonal, you know, this is a summer IPA, a lot of, uh, summer beers that are fruity. I can't stand. Um, much like a line in Google summer shandy or something like that. You know, the fruit is too far forward. This is still a, like I said, a hop forward, sort of a not bitterly aggressive IPA. You know, it's, I, th- I think this guy's clocking it at 50 IBU. So I've certainly recommended things that are more bitter on that, on that scale, but still going to assault you. And then the, the apricot flavor is just an undertone. It's not, it doesn't feel like, taste like syrupy uh, fruit. It's just just a little touch um, that you really feel at the end. Uh, so it's it's a good like it's a good lawnmower sort of beer, or I guess it could be a good beach beer too. Um, if I may be frank, Chris, because I mean you're the beer expert, but uh-huh. this sounds less like a Quint beer and more like a Hooper beer. This seems more like something <laughs> no, Hooper would. No, drink. it's not. It's and maybe maybe it's a happy medium between them. But like the do not get caught up on the apricot. The apricot is is a note not, not an overwhelming, um, flavor. And that's, and that's why I'm, you know, leaning towards it. When I, uh, the, the first time I tried it, I was very apprehensive and very suspect. If it, if it was not a beer from dogfish head, I probably wouldn't have even tried it with, with that sort of name. But, uh, no, it's, it's pretty damn good. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's on your, it might be a little high on your, your bitterness. I'm a, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, next time I, uh, watch Jaws. Yeah, this this April hot beer. Well, ladies and gentlemen, E.T. is currently streaming on Netflix, whereas Jaws is available to rent in all the usual places. But really, why don't you own both of these beautiful films on their equally beautiful Blu-rays? So go out and do that if you haven't already. And Chris and I have clearly come on the side of E.T. We believe that of the two, it is the more essentially film, but you may disagree. So if you do, please tell us or better yet, tell us if you think that there's another Steven Spielberg that's even more essentially let us know at hello at war starts at midnight.com. Yeah. And I just want to say real quick, these, we didn't really touch on this. These, both of these Blu-rays are gorgeous. Even, even if you own these movies on DVD, they have since restored them since the DVD releases, you owe it to yourself to own them on Blu-ray. So do so. Uh, you know, if you're trying to get a hold of us, but email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Uh, you can ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail in your best. What do you say? Quint? Oh, absolutely. It's got yeah. to be Quint. Quint or Jeff Goldblum. Drunk, drunk Quint or Jeff Goldblum or Jeff Goldblum attempting to do Quint. Uh, the, that phone number is 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. You know, that could be an asterisk to our last episode, the Independence Day Resurgence episode. A role I'd like to see Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum playing a salty old fisherman. <laughs> well, stick around, ladies and gentlemen, for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. But it's been a long time Since you've been lonely So what will I do? You are the right one And I'm just a boy who is looking at you 
All right, Hunter, it is recommendation time once again. Uh, we've been talking about Spielberg. Spielberg has a deep, deep catalog. Uh, do you have something else uh, of his to, to recommend here? Well, you know, there's a whole lot of Spielberg besides the essentials that I would certainly recommend, but I'm not going to do that today. I'm actually going to recommend a cheap knockoff. <laughs> Chris, as you and our Midnight Warriors know, there's very few things I enjoy more than obscure films. Mm-hmm. And this is about as obscure as it gets. After the success of Jaws, there were a string of ripoffs. You know, the the Piranha movies, The Deep, actually starring Robert Shaw. Piranha came after Jaws? Yes, I believe really? so. Yeah, I believe late 70s and then Piranha 2, directed by one James Cameron, mm-hmm. I think was early mm-hmm. 80s. But anyway, so yeah, there's a string of, you know, underwater monstery movies. Right, right. Um, one of the strangest, and I in capital S strange, is Orca the Killer Whale. It came out, <laughs> yes, Orca the Killer Whale came Clearly out. Clearly the title came first yes, here. Um, came out in 1977, and as the title implies, it is about a killer whale. It stars Richard Harris and Will Sampson, who played Big Chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. So I think the Richard Harris thing was just, well, who's Robert Shaw-esque? Richard Harris. Um, and what makes it strange is it is a giant underwater creature run amok film. But not the way you would think it is. It is actually a revenge film of the killer whale getting revenge on Richard Harris. What? Is what happened is this, I mean, I'll just tell you. You, you, you should watch it, but I'll just tell you. Is what happened is Richard Harris is a is a salty sea captain who- Is, ca- is he as salty, though? As- no, not as salty, but I mean, okay. Richard Harris is a salty guy. Right. But, or was a salty guy. Let's give credit where it's due here. But he pulled up a killer whale, or he ran he ran into a killer whale with his boat and, you know, killed the killer whale, pulled it up. And then it turned out the killer whale was pregnant. And so he killed the killer whale's baby, too. So kill, and so the killer whale's his spouse uh-huh, uh-huh. seeks revenge against Richard Harris. It, I think it would be better if it was the baby, like seeking revenge. <laughs> the baby years later. lived. The yeah. baby. The baby somehow survived. Yeah. Um, well, alas, that alas, it's it. You, we're just gonna have to satisfy ourselves with the idea of a. So did was he, was he you know harvesting for blubber and oil or just I know it's, it's been a while it's been a while since I've seen it but I think it's just he he was an alcoholic and here's the thing about it, is it tries to add some pathos to the story oh, no. is he was an alcoholic who did something stupid and you know killed this killer whale and gradually over the course of the film he feels guilty about it but his guilt doesn't matter because the damn whale wants his revenge. It's like Quentin Tarantino, pre-Quentin Tarantino, really. Orca the Killer Whale is. How long is this movie, do you know? I think it's an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. Okay, where where can I see this? Um, you know, I saw it on at a Blockbuster tape, uh, blockbuster tape deck at well, the that, bottom that, shelf. That's that, how that, you should that, see exactly. it. Exactly. However, that option no longer being available, you, I believe that you can rent it from Amazon or a few other places, but honestly, it's only like five bucks mm-hmm. on DVD, so you might as well just buy it. I mean, this yeah. is the proverbial $5 DVD. I might just mm-hmm. go home and buy this. I don't know why I don't already own it. And, and buy it for everyone. It's just Christmas gifts exactly. all around this year. Buy it for everyone I know, and then... Because isn't that what people would love to receive from a friend or family member is a copy of Orca the Killer Whale? <laughs> this is something. This is something I love. Here, take it, and I want love you to it. love it too. Yeah. So anyway, that's my recommendation. Is as far as Jaws ripoffs go, this is top notch. Okay. Orca the Killer Whale. Okay, great. Uh, my recommendation this week, I actually I thought about going with early Spielberg and going with Duel. Um, I do think if you haven't seen Duel, which I imagine a lot of our listeners have not. Seek it out. It is pretty brilliant and wonderful, even though, you know, it's a it's a made for TV movie. So come at it with that. And Dennis level, Weaver's but, pretty wimpy in it. But yeah. but otherwise, yeah, good stuff. Um, but instead, I decided to go with um, another suspense film. Um, 
so in I guess in the vein of Jaws, and it's a does it have a giant fish? It it doesn't have a giant fish, um, but it, it does come from the master of suspense. It comes from Alfred Hitchcock, and you are on record as saying this is minor Hitchcock. I I take a little offense. Minor with that. Hitchcock was probably the wrong choice of words, but I it's not in the it's not in the pantheon. I would say it's, it's a, it, it a minus B plus. Yeah, I mean it doesn't it doesn't have Jimmy Stewart or it doesn't have it's it's uh, it's kind of like we were talking about earlier of it's 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 not as good as his best. So you feel you feel and, disappointed. And, and with that said, it is my favorite Hitchcock. Um, bar none. And um, recent, recently caught back up with it. Uh, this comes, this is his 1951 um, suspense, I would say classic, uh, Strangers on a Train. And uh, it's a it's a very simple sort of story, such a Hitchcockian story, though. Um, two men meet on a train in the beginning. Uh, Farley Granger plays this uh, tennis amateur, could be pro, um, named Guy Haynes. And then he meets up with this guy just by chance, uh, played by Robert Walker, the late Robert Walker. This is actually one of his last, uh, uh, well, I think everyone involved in it's the late now, but <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. But at, at the time, I think he died before this movie, uh, came out, um, as this really creepy guy named Bruno Anthony and Bruno basically approaches guy and says, Hey, aren't you that tennis player? Uh, I've got an idea. Um, how about we each kill a person for the other person? We don't know each other. So it's the perfect murder. That's sort of his, his pitch. And, um, guy doesn't exactly say, okay, but he doesn't say, no, don't do it. And so then things start to, so you might say he was asking for it. (laughs) You might say he was asking for it perhaps. Uh, but then things start to unravel and, um, it's, it's sort of, uh, guy Haynes running from, you know, it's, it's the classic Hitchcock, uh, wrong man sort of thing, you know, kind of on the run from the law, but also um, being it, it has another layer where he's haunted by this guy who he knows killed a, you know, significant other of his and is now asking the guy's asking for retribution. Um, and it's a fun, tight little suspense movie. It's got, you know, classic Hitchcock tropes of, um, you know, these nefarious sort of sort of creatures, you know, nefarious people. No one's exactly innocent. Uh, but then also, you know, he's, he's having a laugh at the audience's expense sometimes and has a remarkable at the end, a remarkable stunt, which he says is the most, um, dangerous he ever directed, uh, which I would, I would totally buy, um, which must be seen, um, alone. And then also an amazing performance by, I believe it's his daughter, uh, Patricia Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. um, as sort of just a, an extra, um, sort of background character who's just delightful named Barbara, who is sort of this, uh, this spry young, uh, whippersnapper girl. Who's very into the grotesque, um, who I, I didn't remember, um, from, from seeing it the first time, but recently rewatched it and she's just, she's wonderful. And so, and of course this film strangers on the train, which I'm sure is also a reason you recommend it is the basis for the 1987 remake throw mama from the train is it directed by danny devito starring danny devito and billy crystal same setup only it's a comedy i'm sure that's why you recommend it is it really yeah it's a real movie oh well no i know it's a real movie is it actually the basis for that oh yeah yeah i i didn't know that also uh this this film uh pinned by raymond chandler who apparently uh did not get along with hitchcock too well no they did not and uh so okay so you mentioned alfred hitchcock this will be a micro civil war the birds versus Jaws. That's what we probably Jaws. should. Just, yeah. Okay. Hate, See, that's why we didn't do it because it's yeah. so easy. I it's hate Jaws. The birds. I don't like the birds. See, it's probably my least favorite Hitchcock. Honestly. See, I don't hate the birds, but I mean, Jaws is clearly the winner each, here. Each time I watch it, I, I like it less. 
Do you think that uh, Alfred Hitchcock would have done better if he had a different animal or animals? It's just a movie that shouldn't have been made at the time. Honestly, it's it's too ambitious. Yeah, too ambitious. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes and more. You can say hi to Hunter on Facebook. Or catcall Chris on Twitter and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, rate us, review us, or subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. And if you're the trolling type who despises the show and its co-hosts and is simply hate listening through these credits, you can tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or, if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Shout out to, I dare say, the perfect summer band, Sports, for music on this week's show. Find more at sportsbandok.com. In a summer of sequels, join us in another fortnight as Chris and I discuss one that has been 27 years in the making. From Paul Feig, starring Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig, Ghostbusters. Thanks for listening, folks. Sayonara, sailors. Sayonara, sailors.